Thank you so much for joining me for the podcast. I am Rick Thomas, and you're listening to Your Daily Drive. The title of today's podcast is Legalism is a Fear-Based Culture that Leads to a Complex Life. Now, this is a big podcast. It is a long article. In fact, it is so long that I have divided it up into two parts. Therefore, the next two podcasts are going to be based on this subject here, part one, part two. This is part one, and you can find the first half of this article on our website, rickthomas.net. The title again for this part, Legalism is a Fear-Based Culture that Leads to a Complex Life. Legalism is a complicated subject. It stirs emotive responses from many Christians. If you're in it, it's hard to get out of it. If you did come out of it, it's easy to overreact and go to some dangerous places. So in this two-part series, what I'm going to attempt to do is to identify some of the problems with legalism while offering some biblical solutions. Now, in light of self-disclosure here, let me share with you where I live and part of my experience with legalism. First of all, I uh, I am a bo- I was born a legalist, and so everybody is a legalist because it is a part of our Adamic makeup. If you strip away anything that has ever happened to you, your religious experience, your shaping influences from conditional relationships like your dad, for example, if you could strip all that away, assuming that that was adverse, you would still be a legalist at heart because that's who we are as Adamic people. But then again, after being born in Adam, there are shaping influences, things that happen to us that layer legalism on top of our predisposition toward legalism. And so it's like a double whammy of sorts. Uh, You could say I had a triple whammy because my father was extremely conditional. I had to perform for his love, and that was a total that was a total mess. And then when God regenerated me at the age of 25 years old, I went into a legalistic culture unwittingly. I didn't know any better because I didn't know anything about Christian religion. And everybody in my town was basically of one stripe. And so I went where most everybody else went. And it happened to be a legalistic uh, type church. And so I've I've got it in three different ways. Now, you could say there's a fourth uh, aspect to my life is I live in what I believe and many others along with me believe in the epicenter of legalism. We live in the Bible Belt in the southern part of the United States, and some would say that my area in Greenville, South Carolina, is the buckle on the Bible Belt. It is a deeply ensconced, entrenched, legalistic culture, and it's probably fair to say that the majority of my counseling life has been interacting with legalists. You just don't come out of legalism. I have said tongue-in-cheek that I run a detox center for legalists, those who are coming out. And it takes a good five years of deep discipleship to get a lot of that mess out of you. And so because of my experience with Adam, because of my experience with my dad, because of my experience in 
fundamentalism, which is the legalistic culture that I'm talking about, and because of my experience over the past two decades of helping legalists come out of the lifestyle, I would say that I'm qualified to share this article with you, and so I hope it's a benefit to you. Again, it will be in two parts, and if you want to talk to me about anything in this podcast or on the article, you're welcome to do that. I'm going to leave a lot of resources here for you. In this particular article, I have a video on how to make decisions. I have other articles that are embedded here, and I'll have more resources in the second part when I uh, complete it. And so what I'm talking about is, is Christian legalism, and I want to make a distinction here because Christian legalism does not imply a works righteousness because true Christians know they are saved apart from their works. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 is clear. And so when I talk about legalism, you can put it in quotation marks. I'm talking about Christian legalism. I'm talking about how it affects us in our sanctification. Because even as a deeply ensconced legalist, as I was many years ago, I would spout Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace we are saved, not by our works. Our salvation is a gift from God. And so when I'm talking about legalism in this podcast, I am talking about legalism in our sanctification. There is a type of legalism that stifles and suffocates authentic believers from the unspeakable joy that comes with their inheritance. And that's one of the things, one of the characteristics of this kind of legalism. Generally speaking, they're not happy people. In, in fact, many instances, they are not just unhappy people, but they not only have been depleted of their joy, but they are angry people. I was sitting with a friend a few years ago in a parking lot after lunch, and we were chatting. He's a good friend. I liked him then, and I like him now. But he was sharing with me about how contemporary Christian music was worldly. And I found it instructive that he could, that he could discern worldliness by external observation, by looking at something and just saying, that's worldly. And so I decided to draw him out about how he could know what worldly music is by listening to it, which is why I asked him to define worldliness for me. I wanted to hear his definition of worldliness. He stated that it was the style that made it worldly. He believed modern music was worldly, and he located worldliness as something out there in the world rather than something that is in our hearts. And again, I'll talk more about this in the second podcast, but James and John were very clear that worldliness is in our hearts, not in the world. James talked about this in chapter 1, 14 and 15. John talked about this, 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. Now, his perspective made me more curious, and so I asked him about drums. He said that drums were worldly too, but not in all context. To have a drum in your home is not necessarily worldly. A Christian living in Africa playing drums in a church meeting is not worldly, according to my friend. But to have a drum in a church building in America would be worldly. 
his interpretation of worldliness for all Christians depended on context and culture. It reminded me of my first Greek class during my undergrad program. My professor told me about a rule in Greek, and he said that it was always the same in every case, except in this particular case. And then he talked about this other rule that applied all the time as well, except for certain exceptions. I thought, Greek is going to be impossible to learn. Why can't they make one rule that applies universally? Well, after a few minutes with my friend, I was thinking similarly about worldliness. He believed that a woman who wore pants to a church service would be worldly, but she could wear pants while camping or working in her backyard. She could also wear a swimsuit to the pool or the beach, but she needs to cover her body in other places like while shopping or going on a picnic because it would tempt men to sin if they saw her immodesty. I silently wondered if men don't lust while near an ocean. <laughs> Maybe there is a no-lust no zone around an ocean, which is why she could go to the ocean in a swimsuit but needed to be modest when it came to a picnic or shopping. My friend also would not go to a public movie theater but he would watch a movie on his television. He would not look at a woman in a swimsuit, but view a similarly attired woman doing gymnastics or ice skating. He had an extensive list to live by, and it changed by the setting or the circumstance. Now, what I did appreciate was his honesty and transparency, and we joked a lot while we were talking. We were not arguing or debating in a hostile way. We were friends then and friends now. And so I appreciated his honesty about what he believed and his transparency. It was a totally civil Christian conversation. And also appreciated his desire to live a Christian life before God and others. In that way, he was refreshing and, and inspiring. His Christian mentors trained him to base worldliness on stylistic issues, personal preferences, and community expectations. Now, I agree with him in a sense. Christians should be discerning about how we live in God's world. But where I differed from my friend is, quite honestly, how we defined worldliness. He could look at a person and determine if that person was worldly based on external observations. Now, perhaps you can do that too, but let me confess, I don't have that gift. I have found it nearly impossible to look at a person externally and judge them as being a lover of Christ or a lover of the world. The length of a person's hair or their personal music preferences are dangerous assumptions, in my view, to determine the spiritual condition of an individual's soul. It would be challenging to pick Jesus out of a crowd of Israelites because he was so much like them. He looked like everyone else. I don't think anybody argues this point. Others accused him of sin because he hung out with unsavory people. You see, it becomes confusing 
and subjective, when style preferences and associations are the criteria for discerning worldliness. Jesus hung out with his world. He ate with his world. He drank with his world, and he dressed like his world. But Christ was not worldly. My friend's approach to discerning worldliness was precarious because he was judging external appearances while missing the motive of the heart. It was presumptuous in that it is difficult to sort it all out. Drums in an African church are okay, but not in an American church. Is this the Bible speaking? Or is it white American conservative Christians speak? This kind of philosophy, this kind of worldview, it tempts Christians to compare my list with your list of standards. In my friend's system, each Christian would have different lists regarding their interpretation or based on their interpretation of worldly. A comparative religious culture is not wise. This perspective is why Christian communities draw attention to their stylistic distinctions that make them look different than the culture in which they live. You could say that they're, they're similar to Gnostic Christians. Now, fruit inspection is a Christian expectation. By their fruit, you shall know them. And so I'm not throwing the baby out with the bathwater, but I am asking us to use discernment, wisdom, caution, and by all means, humility. There must be wisdom and humility when when examining a person's fruit because external observations do not always tell you all that you need to know about a person. Christians who are externally centered, they do tend to embrace a Gnostic approach to discerning folks, albeit they would never say that they have a Gnostic worldview. You see, the Gnostics believed in part that the world was terrible, the world was evil, and gnosis, knowledge, was good. The earth was corrupt, and the spiritual was good. They didn't like the things of the world, so they put an accent on the internal, the gnosis, the knowledge. They stayed away from earthly things because it would defile them. You see, legalism borrows from this worldview. The legalist determines what is wrong primarily through external observations, and stays away from those things. They also stay away from those who associate with anyone who participates with the supposed bad things. By staying away from those who participate in bad things, it, in their view, keeps them from contamination or keeps them from falling in sin. Now, as a double measure, they do not associate with anyone who associates with the person who does evil stuff. There is actually a contrived theology that communicates this methodology. It is called the doctrine of separation, which can domino into multiple iterations that separate from the person who associates with the person who associates with the person who associates with the evil thing. It can become quite convoluted and confusing 
for the novice Christian. The New Testament Pharisees were proficient at living out this separated, segregated, and structured lifestyle. They had Gnostic tendencies, which Jesus was not shy about condemning. The Pharisees' doctrine of separation led them to hold the law up as the epicenter of life, and then they placed a hedge around their 600-plus laws. There was a fear that they would break the law, so they erected safe barriers to keep them from getting or keep these other things getting to the law, and they would put a hedge around the hedge to make it even more difficult to break any law. The sad consequence is that they were noted for their spirituality by the number of hedges they set up, which they did not derive all this hedging, and they did not derive it from the Bible. Their severe asceticism led to a breakdown in their theology. It was a breakdown in theology spiritually, logically, practically, and relationally. And as the generations passed, the succeeding followers forgot the intent of the hedge, and due to ignorance, they elevated these tertiary rules to a place of the law. The law expanded into a strict traditionalism that bound people in their consciences to keep something that God did not demand. There are many dangers to ascetic practices, or what I'm calling in this podcast, Christian legalism. Now, I have seen three recurring ones, and they are this, and I want to talk about them as I wrap up this podcast. Three recurring themes with those who embrace Christian legalism. I'm, I'm, I'm not talking about being holy and being moral. I'm not talking about having disciplines. Those things are good, but I'm talking about Christian legalism as I have defined it, and three recurring themes that you will see over and over again. One, fear of others. Two, an erratic lifestyle. And three, cultural irrelevance. Let's take fear of others first. Legalism is a fear-based culture. Being afraid is one of the strongest temptations for external rule keepers. They live in a culture that is rife with insecurity. It is a list culture. Everyone has a list to live by, rules, ascetic practices, and seemingly no one lives according to the same set of rulish preferences. Because they hold their standards at the level of the conscience, the list becomes a matter of authority for the legalist. Now, we see a precedent for this in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 8. I'll talk about it later, but these Jews who became Christians were, it was a matter of conscience that they could not eat meat. But it is worse than this. When these legalistic Christians interact with other legalistic believers who do not practice the things that they do, there is a temptation to judge them uncharitably because the assumption is that they are sinning according to their legalistic list of rules to live by, to be right with God. Not only do legalistic Christians judge legalistic Christians within their hermetically sealed universe, but they judge everyone else as well, if they are not doing the things that are on their list. These legalists are always awkwardly 
if not dogmatically explaining why they do this or that or why they don't do what others do. They are painfully careful about what they say within their circles because painful judgments are real. They don't want to be known as a compromiser or a liberal according to how others within the rule-based community interpret their beliefs. It's not just a fear-based culture, but it is an exhausting one, too. And it's one of the reasons that people implode within this culture and, and go off into deep sin. I'm not saying it's right, but I've seen it so many times. The fear-based legalistic culture is an exhausting culture. Not only is it exhausting, but is definitely not exportable, meaning it's ver- it, it is really hard to export that kind of asceticism to the next generation, to your children. They don't embrace it. It doesn't make sense. There are so many laws on top of laws on top of laws. It, it is rulish preferences, as I said, And so it's not just a fear-based culture, but it is an exhausting one. Point number two, I'm talking about recurring themes that I have seen with people who are ensconced in Christian legalism. One is fear of others, which is huge because the whole culture is fear-based. Number two, erratic lifestyles. God does not call us to instability or double-mindedness, as James said, and chapter 1. And he's not calling us to create a culture that draws more attention to our styles and preferences than it does to our Lord. It is not wise to develop choices for statement making, even if that was not your intent, because I don't think that when the majority of them do this for statement making, but that's what they do. That's what happens, rather, Drawing attention to yourself through immodesty, which is wrong, or over-modesty is not necessary or prudent. The Lord is not the author of confusion. Imagine if you gave your permission to a friend to go to a movie theater, but your friends believed it was a sin to do what you did. But these same friends would watch a video at home or rent a DVD. Because they live in a fear-based culture to where the majority controls what they do or don't do, their lives would become erratic. Everybody is erratic in this scenario. You can't go to a movie, but you can watch one at home. What is worldly here? The movie? The building? The event? I know some Christians who travel to another town to watch a film so their Christian friends would not see them at a movie theater. They would say that being seen at a theater would be a stumbling block to their Christian friends. Are they correct? In a sense, yes, possibly. But if you live in a fear-based culture, wouldn't it be wise to do this? And that's the argument. Paul talked about it this way. In 1 Corinthians 8, which I mentioned earlier, these Jewish believers, these Jewish people got saved. They became believers, and they were afraid to eat meat that was offered to idols. In verse 1, verse 7, verse 13, there's 13 verses in the entire chapter. You can read it quickly. 
Here's verse 1, verse 7, verse 13. Verse 1, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And so my friend who goes to another town to watch a movie because he doesn't want to be a stumbling block is probably exercising love here. In verse 7, he says, however, not all possess this knowledge. Not every Christian believes that they can eat meat. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Verse 13, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. If the movie makes my brother stumble, therefore, I will go to another town to watch the movie so that I don't make my brother stumble. Ironically, these people are more concerned about hiding from the Christians than the non-Christians. I don't care who else sees me as long as the Christians don't see what I'm doing. It's kind of a weird lifestyle. Our, Our life is sideways when we're shielding ourselves from the Christians but have less concern about what non-Christians see, think, or say about us. Now, let's suppose you met a pagan in another town while attending a movie and led him to Christ. What would you do when your new, formerly pagan Christian friend invited you to a movie? What would you say? Would you say it was a sin to watch a movie in a theater? Would you go with him? Would you ask him to go to another town because it's wrong for you to watch it in a locale where you are known? This is a complicated issue. And we can't throw the baby or the bathwater out. That's why we need to have this conversation. We need to think about it deeply, broadly. Sometimes we overreact. Paul was right. Love builds up. But we don't want to leave those Jewish believers like that, always afraid to eat meat because of their former associations. And so point number one that you see with uh, with, uh, legalistic Christians is fear of others, two, erratic lifestyles, and then number three, cultural irrelevance. Jesus was a relevant man. He always connected himself to his culture. He intentionally embedded himself within the milieu of his day. Jesus was not a white, blue-eyed, pristine, robe-wearing, purple-sash-bearing, halo-supporting kind of guy. Christ was not out of step with his community. People didn't look at him and feel odd for his external separatist ways. He blended with the people. Now, he was different. There is no question that he was different, but that was what was so compelling about him. The differences with Christ were not culture-centered style choices. Ironically, he had more anti-religious rules than anti-cultural ones. Maybe you can examine yourself this way. Do you have more anti-legalistic rules than anti-cultural ones. He would work on the Sabbath, for example. He would trash a church building. He condemned religious people. He hung with a harlot. Though he was out of step with the so-called holy people, he was not out of step with his community. He had a gathering ability when it came to the culture. They flocked to him. They wanted to be with him, not because he was externally different, but because he was like them, albeit a much better version of them. The fundamental difference was that he was internally different. And he had that gathering ability. People were drawn to him. 
The legalistic Christian has created a subculture that is rife for insecure people with a bent toward rule-keeping. In this way, they are anti-Jesus by separating themselves from the culture. And their culture has separated from them because the legalistic Christian is, quite honestly, weird and not compelling. And this Christian subculture believes they are bringing glory to God by not engaging the folks that Jesus came to save. Their separation creates and perpetuates isolation and irrelevance. This is part one of a podcast of a a series that I'm doing. This one is titled, Legalism is a Fear-Based Culture that Leads to a Complex Life. It's not over. I have another podcast and another article for you, but you can start reading this one. You can read the resources that I have developed here, and you can... Uh, You can talk to me on our forum if you have anything that you want to chat about, whether it's Christian legalism or anything else. Go to our public forums. They're free to you, and you can ask any question under the sun, and we would love to interact with you. I am not saying that we shouldn't be holy. I am not saying we shouldn't be disciplined. I'm not saying we shouldn't be moral. I am not saying any of those things, but I am saying that we we need to be careful about Christian legalism because it is a thing, and it can put you in a bondage, and it can complicate your life, and perhaps you are that way, and you need some help coming out of this kind of legalistic bondage. If we can serve you, please let us do that. It would be our joy to do so. Your Daily Drive is a production of rickthomas.net, a global community that is seeking to live more productive and inspiring lives. If you'd like to learn more about our community, please go to rickthomas.net, rickthomas.net.